Chapter 9, The Immutability of God O Christ our Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. As conies to their rock, so have we run to thee for safety. As birds from their wanderings, so have we flown to thee for peace. Chance and change are busy in our little world of nature and men. But in thee we find no variableness, nor shadow of turning. We rest in thee without fear or doubt and face our tomorrows without anxiety. Amen. The immutability of God is among those attributes less difficult to understand. But to grasp it, we must discipline ourselves to sort out the usual thoughts with which we think of created things from the rarer ones that arise when we try to lay hold of whatever may be comprehended of God. To say that God is immutable is to say that he never differs from himself. The concept of a growing or developing God is not found in the scriptures. It seems to me impossible to think of God as varying from himself in any way. Here is why. For a moral being to change, it would be necessary that the change be in one of three directions. He must go from better to worse, or from worse to better. Or, granted that the moral quality remains stable, he must change within himself, as from immature to mature, or from one order of being to another. It should be clear that God can move in none of these directions. His perfections forever rule out any such possibility. God cannot change for the better, since he is perfectly holy. He has never been less holy than he is now, and can never be holier than he is and has always been. Neither can God change for the worse. Any deterioration within the unspeakably holy nature of God is impossible. Indeed, I believe it impossible even to think of such a thing, for the moment we attempt to do so, the object about which we are thinking is no longer God, but something else, and someone less than he is. The one of whom we are thinking may be a great and awesome creature, but because he is a creature, he cannot be the self-existent creator. And there can be no mutation in the moral character of God, so there can be none within the divine essence. The being of God is unique in the only proper meaning of that word. That is, his being is other than and different from all other beings. We have seen how God differs from his creatures in being self-existent, self-sufficient and eternal. By virtue of these attributes, God is God, and not some other being. One who can suffer any slightest degree of change is neither self-existent, self-sufficient, nor eternal, and so is not God. Only a being composed of parts may change, for change is basically a shift in the relation of the parts of a whole, or the admission of some foreign element into the original composition. Since God is self-existent, he is not composed, 
there are in him no parts to be altered. And since he is self-sufficient, nothing can enter his being from without. Whatever is composed of parts, says Anselm, is not altogether one, but is in some sort plural and diverse from itself, and either in fact or in concept is capable of dissolution. But these things are alien to thee, than whom nothing better can be conceived of. Hence there are no parts in thee, Lord, nor art thou more than one, but thou art so truly a unitary being and so identical with thyself, that in no respect art thou unlike thyself, rather thou art unity itself, indivisible by any conception. All that God is, he has always been, and all that he has been and is, he will ever be. Nothing that God has ever said about himself will be modified. Nothing the inspired prophets and apostles have said about him will be rescinded. His immutability guarantees this. The immutability of God appears in its most perfect beauty when viewed against the mutability of man. In God, no change is possible. In man, change is impossible to escape. Neither the man is fixed nor his world, but he and it are in a constant flux. Each man appears for a little while to laugh and weep, to work and play, and then to go to make room for those who shall follow him in the never-ending cycle. Certain poets have found a morbid pleasure in the law of impermanence and have sung in a minor key the song of perpetual change. Omar the tent-maker was one who sang with pathos and humour of mutation and mortality, the twin diseases that afflict mankind, saying, Don't slap that clay around so roughly, he exhorts the potter, that maybe your grandfather's dust you make so free with. When you lift the cup to drink and wine, he reminds the reveller, you may be kissing the lips of some beauty dead long ago. This note of sweet sorrow expressed with gentle humour gives a radiant beauty to its quatrains, but however beautiful, the whole long poem is sick, sick unto death. Like the birds charmed by the serpent that would devour it, the poet is fascinated by the enemy that is destroying him and all men and every generation of men. The sacred writers, too, face up to man's mutability, but they are healthy men and there is a wholesome strength in their words. They have found a cure for the great sickness. God, they say, changes not. The law of mutation belongs to a fallen world, but God is immutable, and in him men of faith find at last eternal permanence. In the meanwhile, change works for the children of the kingdom, not against them. The changes that occur in them are wrought by the hand of the in-living spirit. But we all says the Apostle, with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. In a world of change and decay, not even the man of faith can be completely happy. Instinctively he seeks the unchanging and is bereaved at the passing of dear familiar things. Faber again says, O oh Lord, my heart is sick, sick of this everlasting change. 
and life runs tediously quick through its unrusting race and varied range. Change finds no likeness to itself in thee and wakes no echo in thy mute eternity. These words of Faber find sympathetic response in every heart. Yet much as we may deplore the lack of stability in all earthly things, in a fallen world such as this, the very ability to change is a golden treasure, a gift from God of such fabulous worth as to call for constant thanksgiving. For human beings, the whole possibility of redemption lies in their ability to change. To move across from one sort of person to another is the essence of repentance. The liar becomes truthful, the thief honest, the lewd pure, the proud humble. The whole moral texture of a life is altered. The thoughts, the desires, the affections are transformed and the man is no longer what he had been before. So radical is this change that the apostle calls the man that used to be the old man and the man that now is the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Yet the change is deeper and more basic than any external acts can reveal, for it includes also the reception of life of another and higher quality. The old man, even at its best, possesses only the life of Adam. The new man has the life of God. And this is more than a mere manner of speaking, it is quite literally true. When God infuses eternal life into the spirit of a man, the man becomes a member of a new and higher order of being. In the working out of his redemptive processes, the unchanging God makes full use of change, and through a succession of changes, arrives at permanence at last. In the book of Hebrews, this is shown most clearly. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second, is a kind of summation of the teaching of that remarkable book. The old covenant as something provisional was abolished, and the new and everlasting covenant took its place. The blood of goats and bulls lost its significance when the blood of the paschal lamb was shed. The law, the altar, the priesthood, all were temporary and subject to change. Now the eternal law of God is engraven forever on the living, sensitive stuff of which the human soul is composed. The ancient sanctuary is no more, but the new sanctuary is eternal in the heavens, and there the Son of God has eternal priesthood. Here we see that God uses change as a lowly servant to bless his redeemed household, but he himself is outside of the law of mutation and is unaffected by any changes that occur in the universe. Charles Wesley says, And all things as they change proclaim the Lord eternally the same. Again, the question of use arises. Of what use to me is the knowledge that God is immutable, someone asks. Is not the whole thing more metaphysical speculation, something that might bring a certain satisfaction to persons of a particular type of mind, but can have no real significance for practical men? If by practical men we mean unbelieving men engrossed in secular affairs and indifferent to the claims of Christ, 
the welfare of their own souls or the interests of the world to come, then for them such a book as this can have no meaning at all. Nor, unfortunately, can any other book that takes religion seriously. But while such men may be in the majority, they do not by any means compose the whole of the population. There are still the 7,000 who have not bowed their knees to Baal. These believe they were created to worship God and to enjoy his presence forever, and they are eager to learn all they can about the God with whom they expect to spend eternity. In this world where men forget us, change their attitude towards us as their private interests dictate, and revise their opinion of us for the slightest cause, is it not a source of wondrous strength to know that the God with whom we have to do changes not? That his attitude towards us now is the same as it was in eternity past and will be in eternity to come. What peace it brings to the Christian's heart to realise that our Heavenly Father never differs from himself. In coming to him at any time, we need not wonder whether we shall find him in a receptive mood. He is always receptive to misery and need, as well as to love and faith. He does not keep office hours nor set aside periods when he will see no one. Neither does he change his mind about anything. Today, this moment, he feels towards his creatures, toward babies, toward the sick, the fallen, the sinful, exactly as he did when he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for mankind. God never changes moods or cools off in his affections or loses enthusiasm. His attitude towards sin is now the same as it was when he drove out the sinful man from the eastward garden, and his attitude toward the sinner the same as when he stretched forth his hands and cried, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God will not compromise, and he need not be coaxed. He cannot be persuaded to alter his word, nor talked into answering selfish prayer. In all our efforts to find God, to please him, to commune with him, we should remember that all change must be on our part. I am the Lord, I change not. We have but to meet his clearly stated terms, bring our lives into accord with his revealed will, and his infinite power will become instantly operative towards us in the manner set forth through the gospel in the scriptures of truth. Fountain of being, source of good, immutable thou dost remain, nor can the shadow of a change obscure the glories of thy reign. Earth may with all her powers dissolve, if such the great Creator will. But thou forever art the same, I am is thy memorial still. From Walker's Collection Chapter 10 The Divine Omniscience Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising, and art acquainted with all my ways. I can inform thee of nothing, and it is vain to try and hide anything from thee. In the light of thy perfect knowledge, I would be as artless as a little child. Help me to put away all care, 
for thou knowest the way that I take. And when thou hast tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Amen. To say that God is omniscient is to say that he possesses perfect knowledge and therefore has no need to learn. But it is more. It is to say that God has never learned and cannot learn. The scriptures teach that God has never learned from anyone who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counsellor hath taught him. With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counsellor? These rhetorical questions put by the prophet Isaiah and the apostle Paul declare that God has never learned. From there, it is only a step to the conclusion that God cannot learn. Could God at any time or in any manner receive into his mind knowledge that he did not possess and had not possessed from eternity? He would be imperfect and less than himself. To think of a God who must sit at the feet of a teacher, even though that teacher be an archangel or a seraph, is to think of someone other than the Most High God, maker of heaven and earth. This negative approach to the divine omniscience is, I believe, quite justified in the circumstances. Since our intellectual knowledge of God is so small and obscure, we can sometimes gain considerable advantage in our struggle to understand what God is like by the simple expedient of thinking what he is not like. So far in this examination of the attributes of God, we have been driven to the free use of negatives. We have seen that God had no origin, that he had no beginning, that he requires no helpers, that he suffers no change, and that in his essential being, there are no limitations. This method of trying to make men see what God is like by showing them what he is not like is used also by the inspired writers in the Holy Scriptures. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard? cries Isaiah that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creators of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. And that abrupt statement by God himself, I am the Lord, I change not, tells us more about the divine omniscience than could be told in a 10,000-word treatise, where all negatives arbitrarily ruled out. God's eternal truthfulness is stated negatively by the Apostle Paul, God cannot lie, And when the angel asserted that with God nothing shall be impossible, the two negatives add up to a ringing positive. That God is omniscient is not only taught in the scriptures, it must be inferred also from all else that is taught concerning him. God perfectly knows himself, and being the source and author of all things, it follows that he knows all that can be known. And this he knows instantly and with a fullness of perfection that includes every possible item of knowledge concerning everything that exists or could have existed anywhere in the universe at any time in the past or that may exist in the centuries or ages yet unborn. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, 
all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and in earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. Because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He's never surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything, nor, except when drawing men out for their own good, does he seek information or ask questions. God is self-existent and self-contained and knows what no creature can ever know himself perfectly. The things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Only the infinite can know the infinite. In the divine omniscience, we see set forth against each other the terror and fascination of the Godhead. That God knows each person through and through can be a cause of shaking fear to the man that has something to hide, some unforsaken sin, some secret crime committed against man or God. The unblessed soul may well tremble that God knows the flimsiness of every pretext and never accepts the poor excuses given for sinful conduct, since he knows perfectly the real reason for it. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. How frightful a thing to see the sons of Adam seeking to hide among the trees of another garden. But where shall they hide? Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I free from thy presence? If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. And to us who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us in the gospel, how unutterably sweet is the knowledge that our Heavenly Father knows us completely. No talebearer can inform on us, no enemy can make an accusation stick, no forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of the hidden closet to abase us and expose our past. No unsuspected weakness in our characters can come to light to turn God away from us since he knew us utterly before we knew him and called us to himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord, that hath mercy on thee. Our Father in heaven knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. He knew our inborn treachery and for his own sake engaged to save us. His only begotten Son, when he walked among us, felt our pains in their naked intensity of anguish. His knowledge of our afflictions and adversities is more than theoretic, it is personal warm and compassionate. 
Whatever may befall us, God knows and cares as no one else can. William Blake says, He doth give his joy to all. He becomes an infant small. He becomes a man of woe. He doth feel the sorrow too. Think not thou canst sigh a sigh, and thy maker is not by. Think not thou can weep a tear, and thy maker is not near. Oh, he gives to us his joy, that our griefs he may destroy, till our grief is fled and gone, he doth sit by us and moan.